Welcome back to the GHG Cast, a window into the world of a Canadian company with a big idea to become the global reference for greenhouse gas emissions in the interest of producing them. I'm Alexander Milas, and for this podcast episode, ahead of COP26, Stefan Germain, GHG Sats CEO, had the opportunity to sit down with Jack Dangermont, the president and founder of Esri, and Richard Cook, Esri's Global Director of Remote Sensing and Imagery at the Redlands Headquarters in California. Together, they discuss how greenhouse gas emissions data, including methane data, fit into the world of geospatial data, the art of storytelling with geospatial data to inform and engage climate policymakers and governments, the rise of geoaccounting, and the new collaboration between the two organizations. My name is Stefan Germain, and I'm the CEO at GHGSAT. Over the last 10 years, I've had the privilege of working with a brilliant team of people, bringing our vision to reality, and that is to bring global transparency to greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. Today, I have the privilege of being in beautiful Redlands, California, at the headquarters of Esri, to talk about how greenhouse gas emissions and methane emissions monitoring in particular fits into the world of geospatial data. I'd like to thank today uh, both Jack and Richard for being with us uh, on this podcast. And also I'd like to thank the World Geospatial Council for acting as a catalyst for bringing this conversation to bear today. So with that, maybe I could hand it over to Jack and to Richard to introduce yourselves. All right. Well, thank you very much, Stefan. We are uh, very privileged to have you here in Redlands, center of the world, actually, (laughs) center of the geospatial world, some of us think. I am president of ESRI, and my colleague here, uh, Richard Cook, is the general manager, director of global business development. Is that global what you bu- call That's it? what you tell me, Jack. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, together here, we build software tools uh, and support our users doing geospatial kinds of things. And so I'm really pleased, actually, that you're here because it launches this idea of a partnership between us, uh, our two companies. Uh, our users, we have about 350,000 users, customers around the world, about 10,000 users. Uh, no, about 10 million users, actually. Uh, a couple of zeros. Uh, and what they do is apply geographic information to different kinds of problems. And one of the big problems, as we know these days, is climate change, human-induced climate change. And so I am so pleased that we are partnering because what it means is that we can bring your information captured from satellites right into the action frame of our users. And whether they're national governments wanting to tell stories about what's going on or, or local governments being able to apply this information to monitoring and accounting about what's happening with our climate, uh, it's, it's going to be very powerful collaboration. So, uh, Yeah, and, and actually, Stefan, I had been talking with various folks around campus. I said, have you been looking at what GSGSAT is doing? This is going to be really interesting. Our customers really look to us to advise them on the right types of partners and and, uh, data providers to work with to solve their problems. And um, so I was really thrilled when uh, your your team reached out and said, hey, we'd really like to partner with you guys and work together. And so this came together really fast, and I'm really, really thrilled. Well, thank you both again. So maybe we could start the conversation by talking about COP26. And uh, this is really timely because we are just a few weeks away from COP26, And we're speaking now on the heels of a report that was just issued a few weeks ago by the UN IPCC on the ongoing changes uh, and the urgency surrounding climate change. 
So, uh, Jack, maybe I can ask you, in general, geospatial data, how do you see geospatial data being used in the context of climate change? Well, we can start with this frame that you did a nice job of introducing, that our world's in trouble. And uh, a lot of it has to do with human-induced climate change, but also this uh, sense of overpopulation on our planet, which is sort of sucking us dry. We're over-consuming over with the limited resources that we have. And whether it's in, indicated by things like fire or severe weather change or uh, the loss of biodiversity, all these factors are interrelated. And uh, geospatial information is giving us a sense of what's going on. It gives us a sense of understanding. I mean, in the, in the recent crisis with COVID, maps played a major part in creating understanding of what was going on. And, and I, uh, well, there's no vaccine for climate change, actually. That's one of the big issues. And the world woke up to the power of geospatial understanding by seeing the information coming at it. And the, the great richness of content that you create through your satellites of being able to see uh, is a beginning. So understanding precedes action, one of my best friends often says. And you're in the understanding. We are collectively in the understanding business. So when we say, how does geospatial information help us? Well, first, it makes people aware, like it made people aware of, of COVID. Um, and then uh, there are just dozens of things that we must do. Uh, we're going to have to uh, make, make agriculture more sustainable. How do you do that? Well, uh, being able to synoptically understand it and then provide information to the farmers and uh, the regulators of farmers and the people who do accounting about things like uh, carbon sequestration. Uh, all, all of these are, are ways to play into this space. Uh, but in cities, same thing, creating greater efficiency, whether it's moving cars or moving vehicles or supply chains, all of these things are interrelated. So uh, we, see, we see here geography as a kind of framework and science for taking all this information and integrating it and then overlaying these various layers of information so that we can see holistically what's going on and then link the different uh, parts of of geographic uh, um, science together so that we can apply it in meaningful ways. Not only understand the relationships, but also be able to uh, address human activities in such a way that uh, we can empower them with greater efficiency, better decision-making geographically, you know, locating in the right place, not locating in the wrong place. These are, uh, these are all frames that, uh, uh, and, and a special kind of lens that I think empower our users to, well, I say take the geographic approach. Uh, and the geographic approach is being able to assemble all this information, bring it together, and then, and then holistically uh, address problems, not just from an economic perspective or not just from an environmental perspective or not just a social perspective, but bring the different disciplines together or the different uh, organizations that are uh, pertinent to a particular problem, and you overlay them. That's the word that I, I like to use. And uh, a major set of overlays is the kind of framing of information that you deliver off of satellites. So maybe I can dive into greenhouse gases in particular, because that's one of the very specific challenges coming up at COP26. Um, would you be able to speak to any uh, specific 
uh, layers or specific sets of information that you've seen or that you work with that address greenhouse gas emissions in general in, in anticipation of COP26? Well, I think you guys are really blazing a new trail here. In the satellite industry, we typically worked with optical and spectral and synthetic aperture radar sources, which give you a certain level of information, but it's still typically a two-dimensional kind of view of the planet and a view of the world. And, and, and we did some interesting things with understanding change in terms of just traditional raw pixels, but you know, spectral data gave us interesting ways to look into the signatures of objects and understand how they were changing over time. I think what we're seeing now is what you guys are doing with the, the monitoring of gas, methane gases and, and carbon dioxide, but also the, um, the merging of all these different types of data sets together into these temporal cubes, these multi-dimensional temporal cubes that allow us to look at things in, in different directions in time and space and understand the relationships of what all these different sensors are telling us. And I think um, the way Jack talks about it, I think, is very interesting. He talks about the geographic approach, and it starts with measurement. You're measuring the planet. And so we're, we're effectively, with the sensors you're, you're launching, with the sensors that uh, the optical providers and the SAR providers are launching, they're, they're effectively wiring the planet. It's wireless, but they're wiring the planet. And, and by wiring the planet, it gives us, and I love Jack's approach, or his word, it gives us a holistic view uh, of the planet from different modalities and different scientific domains and methodologies. But then when you bring it together into these cubes, you can do some really interesting work. You can apply AI techniques to it. And, and then you really start to understand what the measurement devices are telling you. And then you can integrate it into broader workflows that are specific to whether you're an oil and gas pipeline operator looking, you know, looking at methane leaks or you're uh, running a refinery and you're, you're trying to understand what your emissions are. I think that's really the power. It's no one layer that's coming in to ArcGIS. It's all of these layers coming in together. And, and the way Jack describes it is we've, we're kind of building this central nervous system for the planet. You add to that IoT devices that are measuring all of these other various things on highways and in factories and, in, and, and out in farms and fields, things that are telling us about moisture content, about temperature. All those kinds of things bring all of this data together and give us that, that broader holistic picture. So I guess that's a long way to say Lots of interesting individual data layers. I think the SAR data is very interesting that's coming out. We're going to do a lot of interesting things with that. Uh, interf interferometric SAR has been around for a while, but we've never really kind of realized its full potential. But when you mesh it together with these other data sources, you overlay what you guys are doing with emissions data, I think that's where you get, uh, that's where you get a really powerful picture of what's going on. Yeah, so... Uh repeating in a way what Richard is saying or reinforcing it, we are learning how to measure virtually everything that moves and changes on the planet. Yeah. And those are being sourced in different kinds of servers, uh, you know, measure, server, and then served out in geographic layers. And what GIS does is allow us to overlay those layers and then do analytics. Uh, and some of those analytics are just descriptive. And then some of those analytics are, are uh, predictive. So uh, recently we did a, a land cover map for the entire planet using, uh, set, uh, using Sentinel data. Right. We did it in like seven days. We were able to use AI machine learning to, to calculate land cover. But then we also work with Clark University to predict out where land cover is going to be by 2050. 
Uh, and that's just taking, you know, AI machine learning statistical tools and saying probably it'll be following the same patterns based on uh, spatial uh, statistics as it relates to other factors that affect the growth patterns. So it showed the expansion of the human footprint. And that's very insightful because it then gives planners and decision makers who are looking at all this geographic data a kind of framework to be able to make decisions about what areas should be protected. So in the biodiversity area, we're also working with E.O. Wilson to uh, estimate the hot spots of biodiversity on the planet. And so we can take the forecasted land cover information and overlay it against those, uh, those special uh, you know, our lungs are biodiversity areas that are left and put them into protection zones. That's a lot of what this 30-30 uh, or 50-50 uh, 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 goal of being able to protect uh, a major footprint of landscape that's left is all about. Uh, but then also, let's be more practical, talking about our customers' use. I mean, they're trying to drive efficiency and they want to be able to measure the impact of certain decisions that they're making, whether it's uh, driving vehicles in uh, a certain geography, like a city, creating greater sustainability, or whether it's uh, being able to uh, you know, locate solar uh, energy farms using these overlays to be able to pick the right location. And so that doesn't necessarily pertain to methane gas, but it relates to uh, being able to make decisions which then can be measured in terms of their impact. So I like to refer to this as this term geo-accounting. It's accounting for all the things that actually we care about beyond just money. So if I do this plan um, and lay out an alternative scenario for a particular set of actions, what is the effect of that? Well, uh, I can measure it in terms of biodiversity protection, but also over time being able to understand the impact of certain spatial changes on say methane gas uh, emissions or uh, situations is gonna be amazing. So it's like a, having a full deck in the spreadsheet, you know, not just the financial dimension. So uh, I think this uh, both directing action but also evaluating action, uh, alerting uh, organizations like regulators to the implications of what a particular set of activities are that are going on underway right now are all part of this uh, larger frame of the geographic approach. So maybe you can uh, take that theme of, of uh, information driving decisions and talk about how this applies to policymakers and to the public sector in general. Could we talk a bit about and give us your perspectives on um, how uh, methane data, how climate data can be used to help influence or um, raise awareness with policymakers? I think first off, uh, policymakers may not even know what methane gas emissions are. And so being able to put it on a map uh, allows you, all of us, to not only tell a story about it and its changes over time, uh, but also understand about it. So we have uh, a technology known as story maps. And it's, also, it's all about telling stories with mapping. So people are not taught how to explain things very well, scientists particularly. And uh, so storytelling 
uh, is a, a, a frame of reference that National Geographic Society in the United States really knows quite well. They tell stories about elephants, they tell stories about what's happening in Nigeria or in, uh, you know, on the moon. They're storytellers. And uh, being able, and it's a, it's a art form uh, of, of uh, bringing spatial information together and pictures together with, uh, with a story. Uh, and movie people know a lot about this, but so how do we convince people who are not technical, uh, who are largely in these policy positions, about what's going on? Uh, you need to be able to tell great stories. And maps are a medium for doing that. And so it's not just what we call maps in the traditional sense. You know, this is where Montreal is. This is where New York is, like that. It's really uh, thematic maps that represent uh, situations. And so the 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 nervous system of the planet, as we sort of refer to it, is about measuring both locally and synoptically everything that moves and changes, and then making it available through the web as web services. And then with apps, uh, letting these stories that emerge out of the single measurements and combinations of measurements tell stories that wake people up. And decision makers are not stupid. Uh, but they need to have things explained to them. And so the, the logical connection between our two companies is really powerful. The idea you're in the measurement business, you want to disseminate that measurement in such a way that people can really understand it. So the visualization dimension of it and the ability to bring those visualizations into context, like on top of a topographic map, so people see the relationship between sources and results of emissions, uh, for example, is going to be very powerful. So the simple ones are going to be the most powerful ones. Uh, it's just telling the story about methane and what it's doing and where, what it, how it's changing. Uh, but then more importantly, this analytic framework, setting it up in data cubes where we can actually do analytics um, and accounting, geo-accounting, may be even more powerful over time. So, so data cubes and geo-accounting clearly require a lot of collaboration between our companies, for sure. But there's also collaboration with scientists, right. with academia, with government stakeholders as well. So can you talk a bit about um, your experience in fostering that kind of collaboration across different groups? Yeah, what, what the geographic approach really does is it brings different sciences and different disciplines together. So each science like biology, hydrology, climatology, meteorological, fun. all of these are specializations. And you know, in the 1800s, people specialized in science. Uh, and that really got real progress in science. The, the problem is that it set up these scientific stovepipes so that what's really well understood in one domain is not really well understood in a different domain. Um, what geography provides is kind of like a mother of, sci of all sciences because you can locationally relate information in these layers and by overlaying these layers you actually do integration of the sciences uh, together. This is, this is actually why I like to refer to geography as one of the most important sciences because while biology is very important and climatology is very important and, and all of them, all the ologies are important, uh, how do you bring all the ologies together? And that's the, the power of the fundamental science of geography. But in the digital domain, when we talk about GIS, uh, it's really 
digitizing these different layers and bringing them together to uh, allow this holistic approach to problem solving uh, to occur. Uh, I don't know if that really addresses your question. It does. We find it's a challenge to bring together the scientific community with academics, with governments, and, and our customers at the end of the day. You know, when we're aiming to attract more customers to use the data that we use uh, and we do, that we generate, we need to have um, some uh, scientific track record and some verification validation from the scientific community that then brings that together with um, academic uh, analyses and uh, comparisons with other satellite systems, and finally gets accepted by government entities so they can use it for policymaking. And we find that to be quite a challenge because you have to bring all the different stakeholders together at the same time to get action at the end of the day. So many, m- many companies we found won't really act on new sources of data. I mean, you, maybe you've had this experience with whether yeah, it's methane yeah, data or other data. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not always easy to get them all coming together at the same time to say, this is, you want to use this now. It's urgent, it's available, it's available today. So how do you get people over that threshold? Well, as we were talking earlier, sometimes the first barrier you have to get over is them not wanting to know, right? Um, Because, and Jack teed this up perfectly, uh, understanding precedes action. That's exactly why they, in a lot of cases, they initially don't want to know. But then the problem becomes so pressing and so pointed that they have to know, they have to understand. And I think, Practically, to your previous point of how we work with the the science communities, I mean, we work very closely with um, researchers and academicians all over the world. I mean, we're in every major university that you can imagine. And uh, but I think there's also things that we do practically, like we work with Microsoft and the Planetary Computer Team up in up in in the Seattle area, and we do grants to researchers who who are trying to solve tough climate problems. So we'll grant them access to software. Uh, and actually, we've recently even deployed a lot of our software natively in Azure so it can be used as a SaaS. They don't even have to, they can literally just log into the planetary computer. They've got access to our software. Uh, we've worked with Microsoft to curate various open data sources to allow them to just natively use it right in there. And then we work with um, uh, the group on Earth Observation, GEO, to hand out grants in, in collaboration with Microsoft to help these researchers get their work going. And then a lot of those folks end up in our startup partner program because the work, the work uh, matures, it, it coalesces into something that looks like it's, it's uh, viable in the marketplace. And, and then we bring them into our startup program and we give them access to our technology for no cost for the, like the first three years so that they can, they can go from uh, a research project basically to uh, trying to incubate something that would be uh, saleable in the market. And we, we help them with the technology. We help introduce them to, to the right communities of people. Um, so we actually do a lot of, of things that we don't talk a lot about publicly, um, you know, just investing in our time and our resources and our money to, to encourage uh, folks to, to use geography as that unifying science uh, to, to break down some of these stovepipes. Yeah, if we look back over the last 50 years, some of our first investments were building collaborations with universities. Mm-hmm. And what that did is uh, affected geography as a science. So the technology uh, began to co-evolve with the science of geography. And that, in turn, spilled over into the other sciences, like geology or like climatology. So this co-evolution 
of tools where the academics gave us feedback about uh, our tools uh, as it affected the evolution of the, of the fundamental science of understanding. This was a powerful thing. So I su simply suggest that you need to, as you continue to introduce new sensors or even work with the sensors that you have, uh, working closely with them to invent the science for its applications will be a very important step in um, your own company's evolution. One of the challenges we face is that climate change is urgent. And we have a data that's available now that can help drive action now. How do you get that accepted? I think you've got to have partnerships uh, with real users. I mean, all we are is tool builders. In a way, all you are is a measurement company. You know, that's sort of the reality. So how, uh, how do you get acceptance that your measurements are very useful? It's only in the development of practical applications to it that really makes sense. So the, here's where I think uh, the, there's a great opportunity for not you or us, but for our users to be able to use your information in crafting and building these solutions, whether it be large farming companies or forestry companies or the oil companies, the pipeline companies, that uh, they, will, they will see and they will build these applications that uh, actually apply and then demonstrate the value. And having a portfolio of these applications uh, is going to be one of the, the most important things that your organization really has because you can speak with, uh, with, with authority uh, about the value of it when you have applications that demonstrate it. So it's like a chicken and the egg in a way. It's, it's one of the first things that actually brought our two companies together is that uh, we've, we were looking for ways of disseminating our data to our customers. Right. We found a lot of our customers were already using Esri, of course. Right. And so we found that that was the most natural medium through which to deliver our data to our customers. Right. And you know, this leads to another discussion we were talking about earlier with regards to Fortune 500 companies now being right. very interested in trying to understand how to approach sustainability, how to approach climate data in their own ESG reporting to financial markets or even just tracking metrics internally? Well, some of these methodologies have to be invented. Actually, I mean, you're asking me questions that I am struggling with because we don't have the applications of the integration of methane data ready off the shelf, oh, you know? And uh, so it's, it's troubling, like, well, oh, well, how do I answer that question when it doesn't actually exist? But that's what makes it exciting as well, because there's an urgency to it and a need for it, right? So that's why I'm, I'm thrilled that we're working together to try to... Yeah. I, think, I think one of the rich areas is going to be, uh, number one, as I think back what we've been talking about, number one is really showing people through visualization techniques, maps, uh, what methane is all about. And then showing uh, the relationship between that and other layers of information and what it means. Uh, so it gives contextual meaning to methane. Uh, and then we tie it back to very specific human activities and the release of methane, the causes for it, the sources for it. And, um, you know, our world is one. And people don't actually realize that, that they see it through the lens of, of economists or, or developers or uh, foresters or water people or, you know, or normal you know, salespeople or whatever. <laughs> they see the whole world through that lens. They don't see it as in one interconnected organism. And uh, the fact is that 
methane measurements are one way to understand some of the relationships that exist between this and that, between sources and uh, the end result. And being able to tell the, so another set of applications that are going to be challenging and important for you is to tell the story. It's, uh, it's storytelling. It's, uh, and you didn't get a degree when you went to college in explaining things, right? No. It's, it's really funny. You didn't even take a class in explaining things. Right. But this is so fundamental uh, to the business of introducing new technologies and new data types in the scientific domain. You have to have that talent. And uh, the power of visualization, the connection between your stuff and our stuff will allow you to quickly tell that story uh, and have people understand it. And then working with customers, uh, it's not going to be you that make that uh, application. Well, and maybe in some cases you do, but uh, it'll be the users who take that information and they begin to experiment with it first in the academy, uh, but then ultimately in regulatory agencies like the environmental agencies uh, or uh, organizations like large corporations that say, aha, I am I am I'm emitting this stuff, what do I do? And I want to be able to subscribe to that service and be able to identify where it is and go after it like the pipeline companies. It, it's amazing because today we're measuring literally millions of tons of methane on a regular basis. And just to translate that into practical terms, just think of millions of cars taken off the road every year. Yes. We're measuring that routinely in, in North America and around the world. And finding a way to even just let customers and policymakers know that we have that data, we can see emissions from these places, and th this is stuff they can act on. There are solutions to this today. Well, even uh, that it exists, right. because it's invisible. It's so what, what happens is the ability to take methane and visualize it uh, allows us to move from the invisible to the visible, and uh, be able to tell that story is going to be uh, immensely important. Yeah. Once people are aware that these millions of tons of methane are going out there, man, let's do something about it. So understanding it, telling the story, getting the explanation right, precedes action, as Richard was saying. Uh, and then we have to have a whole list of things that are presumably relatively easy to do uh, in organizations that are, that are the emitters. You were talking about the Fortune 500 companies. You, you know, I, I sort of speculated that this is going to be a mega trend, and whether it will or not is is remains to be seen but I do I do observe a lot of our fortune 500 com, uh, customers coming to us and saying you know hey look our board has 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 told us we have to have a sustainability program we have to join the race to zero we have to be carbon neutral by 2030 but what they're really asking and this goes back to what Jack was saying is they're asking for a geoaccounting system <laughs> right in in our terminology yeah. and they're asking for us to help them uh, articulate what their geoaccounting system is telling them in a way that their executives can understand and make business and policy decisions that impact their ability to achieve their their uh, sustainability goals. And part of that is normalizing different measurements right. into the same frame. Uh, in economics, I just remember studying this, costs of externalities. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the, the financial part and they would always, in those days, this is 50 years ago, talk about, you know, these other costs. Uh, that all can be normalized by taking a geographic frame. So when I talk about geo-accounting, it's a matter of 
whether it's by cell or by geographies like census tracts or zip codes. It's about normalizing different forms of measurements into a uniform, uh, a uniform base and then being able to make it understandable like the economists have used spreadsheets. Why can't we have a spreadsheet that, you know, a, equivalent that brings right. it all together? Well, geography is, is exactly that. So it's, it starts with geomeasurement. Um, it continues with geoanalytics. It is framed by geoaccounting, but then there's the action part, which is what I like to call geodesign, uh, where you're actually designing strategies spatially, like let's do this here, like sketching on a map. Um, and planners understand that language pretty well, but uh, outside of, say, city planning or designers or architects, that is an unknown world. So frames of maps allow geoaccounting to actually happen. And so I, I see these five or so different geo-things as setting it up for being able to make a more sustainable world. And look, Stefan, it's going to take all of our best science. It's going to take all of our best technology uh, to pull this off. And then it's going to take all of our best creative and design thinking. And by the way, that means also that it's going to take all of our best communication because technology and all this information, it just ain't enough. What we need is buy-in by the policy people, the, the people who actually make the decisions. So they have to see it all and understand it so that they can take action. And that's really where, where I think this conversation is leading is how do you reach them? So the cop... Uh, uh, you know, event is going to be interesting, but unless it's really framed well, uh, it's, uh, people won't understand it. They'll be talking different languages and not really understanding each other. You know, this morning I saw in the LA Times this picture of our, our president, uh, you know, we have a new president here in, in the United States, uh, Biden, and also the governor, uh, Governor Newsom, uh, and they were looking at this map of the fires. And the way that they finally understood what's happening with California burning down is around this map. When they really wanted to understand what's going on, they looked at a satellite picture map that's showing exactly where the fire is right now. And that's what people want to hear and see. And then they want to be able to act on it, you know. Right. And, and that isn't going to happen from the technology. It's going to happen by people who really know how to interpret that technology inside of organizations. We call them GIS professionals speaking to the policy people, because policy people don't just take data without interpretation. I mean, if you think about how you make decisions in your corporation, uh, it's not just based on the numbers. I mean, you talk to an expert that tells you exactly what's going on or helps you interpret. Uh, you have to have people that really understand, in your case, methane and uh, its spatial dimension uh, that can interpret it for a policy person because they just don't have time to figure it out. So visualization can help, uh, interpretation can help, but you really need that infrastructure of people that are the experts that are applying it. That's why, again, I, uh, answering your question of a while ago, uh, I think building up the academy uh, with specialists who really know your tools, you know, either you know, granting them your tools, uh, working with them carefully, uh, helping build the sort of authoritativeness of the science of which uh, your technology is really generating is uh, going to be important. 
Well, you've been very generous with your time this morning. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Well, thank you. And, and I certainly wanted to awesome. echo what you said earlier about there's, there's nothing like really seeing people in person. Yeah. We've, we've probably forgotten what that's like. Over, well, I certainly have over the last 18 months, a lot of two-dimensional, a lot of Zoom. Yes. And it's been a pleasure being here in person. Well, thank you very much. Somebody said once collaboration happens at the speed of trust. And you don't trust screens so much because you don't. You said you, you don't, don't know see. the people; they're two-dimensional. You, you don't know what's behind it, and so thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, you very bet. much. Yeah. Thanks, Richard, a lot of stuff thank on for coming. For we appreciate it. This has been a GHG Cast episode. We have many more stories to tell. If you enjoyed this podcast as much as we have, don't forget to leave us a rating on the podcast app. For more on GHG Sat's capabilities visit our website at ghgsat.com. For our latest updates, you can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at ghgsat.